saints day. And so it seemed appropriate in the providence of God, I think, that today's text uh, would also be uh, an appropriate text leading into uh, All Saints Day. Uh, Rise, if you would, if you're able, out of respect for God's word as I read Mark 12, verses 18 to 27. This is the inspired word of God. And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise up again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Since the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me once more? Our Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak even now. Please do speak to us. Speak to us mightily. Speak to us boldly. Speak to us clearly that we might know your will. For your word is living and active. May it be so in us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I looked at this passage this week, studying it for this sermon, uh, it it seemed to me that the key verse to this, this whole passage was verse 24, right? Where Jesus says, Is not this the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. I say that I think that that's the key verse to the whole passage because of my realization that we too are all too often found in that same place, right? Chris mentioned it before, that that too often we don't know the scriptures. Too often we don't know the power of God. And because that is the case, we often fail to experience the joy that God would have for us. And this is specifically true in three different types of situations, I think. Uh, One is we we try to make God answer on our own terms. Two, we, we fail to submit to God's word. And then finally, three, we think only what we can imagine is true or is possible. First, we we try to make God answer us on our terms. The Sadducees, we see, came to him in verse 18, 
and it's pointed out there that they were those who say there is no resurrection, and they ask the question of Jesus. We far too often, I think, kind of lump the Pharisees and the Sadducees together, right? Because it, it talks about the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees being these two groups that came against Jesus all the time, and so we, we tend to think of them as, well, they're just kind of the religious leaders, and they're all just one big group, uh, but, but really there were very different groups. The, the Pharisees tended to be kind of the, the people who were uh, thought more favorably, actually, by, by the popular, uh, popular uh, opinion, whereas the Sadducees tended to be kind of more aristocratic. Uh, they were the, the powerful party, largely in control of the temple. The Pharisees uh, believed strongly in divine sovereignty, where the Sadducees believed in free will. The, the Pharisees believed in things like angels and demons, as they are spoken of in God's word, but the Sadducees did not believe in angels or demons. The Pharisees believed that the Torah, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, were authoritative, but they also believed that the prophets and, and uh, oral tradition were all authoritative. The Sadducees only held that the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, those written by Moses, were authoritative. And finally, as verse 18 told us, whereas the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, the Sadducees did not believe that there was a resurrection. In fact, that's where the old Sunday school joke comes, right? You've probably heard it before. Uh, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were so sad, you see, right? Chuckle, chuckle. Uh, it's this difference specifically, though, that, that brings us uh, to the question that they asked Jesus, this confrontation, right? We've been seeing all kinds of different people come to Jesus trying to confront him, trying to, trying to put him in his place, trying to shut him down, as it were. And the Sadducees are the next group to come, and they, they want to mock him in his belief of the resurrection. They want to show him that, that he is wrong to believe in the resurrection and, and foolish and, and so they ask him this question and they pose him with this hypothetical situation. They say, say that Moses wrote to us, so they're saying in the first five books of the Bible, which we do hold to be authoritative, Moses wrote about how a man's brother, if he dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, then the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for the brother. This is kind of a weird Thing he's talking about by our understandings and our modern sensibilities. What it, what it was was a practice that's called leveret marriage, and it's, it's outlined in Deuteronomy chapter 25. There, beginning in verse 5, we read these words specifically. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger." Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. This seems, according to our modern sensibilities, to be very odd. And I think we're all pretty glad that this isn't kind of the rule that we follow now. But, 
But you see what the idea was, was it was very important that a family name be passed on, that generations carried it on. And if, if a man died before he had had a child, that was a terrible thing because, because his name would be blotted out. And so it was said that, that his brother held the responsibility to produce a child in his name that would carry on his family name. We see a picture of this in the Old Testament book of Ruth, right? With Ruth and, and Boaz, right? Which is an extension of this, uh, of this idea of leveret marriage. Next time you read through Ruth, consider it in that context. Um, now, it's unclear as to how prevalently this was practiced in Jesus' day, but it really is irrelevant because the Sadducees aren't really asking Jesus a legitimate question here, right? They're, they're trying to set him up. They're trying to paint him into a corner. They want to make God answer on their terms. So in light of this practice that Moses had outlined in Deuteronomy 25, they proceed to concoct a story, right, about these seven brothers, the first of which took a wife, and then he dies before having children, and so the second takes her, and he dies before having children, and the third dies, and the fourth dies, and the fifth dies, and the sixth dies, and the seventh dies, and then finally the wife dies. And, and at this point, I actually have questions about the wife and what exactly she's doing to these men. Uh, is she putting something in their soup? I don't know, but it's a little fishy if you ask me. But that has nothing to do with anything either. I'm no better than the Sadducees at that point. But in the resurrection, they say, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, because they don't believe in the resurrection, right? They say in the resurrection, when they rise again, chuckle, chuckle, ha, ha, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. They think that they've got Jesus in a big gotcha moment. But what they don't realize is that they have actually gotcha'd themselves, right? They're, they're using the Bible, which is always good, right? We should go to the Word of God. That's good. But they're using it in a sinful way for sinful purposes. That's the same thing that Satan did in the wilderness. Remember when he tempted Jesus? He, each one of his temptations, he's bringing forth Scripture, right, to, to, to try, to, uh, try to tempt Jesus. But Jesus knows what Satan is up to. He knows that Satan knows the scripture, at least he understands that he has a, a familiarity with the scripture. In fact, he's more familiar than any of us are with the scriptures. He knows it better than you do, right? And he will use it against you because he will use it in a way that is not for God's purposes. And so we need to be careful whenever somebody uses the scriptures as a support for an argument or or. Uh, they, they put a Bible verse on something, affix it to it. We, we need to be careful not to just readily and quickly accept that for what they're saying. We need to consider in light of the whole of Scripture, in light of the context of the passage that they're using. We need to think about what it truly and really means. We need to understand what is actually going on with all of this, right? Just because something has a Bible passage on it, that does not mean it is godly, right? It can be used in the wrong way. We can't just try to make God say whatever we want. That's what the Sadducees were doing here. And in verse 25, we see that Jesus says, when they rise from the dead, 
They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. I think Jesus kind of sticking in the knife and twisting it a little bit here, isn't he? Because we've already mentioned earlier that they don't even believe in the angels in heaven. But Jesus goes there, right? He says, no, they, they are just like the angels in heaven. And it's interesting, he, he doesn't say they will be angels in heaven when they die, right? I think sometimes in our culture, we, we have this idea that like, well, we die and go to heaven to be an angel, right? I saw it not too long ago, somebody Somebody died and somebody was mentioning something about it and they said that they earned their wings, right? It's like, well, no, they, they didn't earn their wings. That's, that, that's not what angels are. Angels aren't people who used to be alive, right? That's, there's something different. He says they'll be like angels in a specific way, right? He's saying specifically in that they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, you might be saying, but I want to be married in heaven, right? I've got a good marriage. I think that's a good idea. Um, but, but what we need to consider is, well, what, what's the purpose of marriage, right? Why did God give marriage? And I think of three main reasons right off the bat. One is for companionship and community, right? At the very beginning, Adam was alone. God said, it's not good for man to be alone, right? So he gave him a wife. And, and so there's this companionship, this community that exists because of marriage. But, but in heaven and in the new heavens and the new earth, we will have perfect fellowship, perfect love with others. We will love perfectly, we'll relate perfectly to others. We, we won't have anything lacking that would be made up in that area by marriage. I love Kent Hughes has to say, to be sure, there will be no marriage in heaven and no concern about past husbands or wives, but that does not suggest in the slightest a reduction of love. We will love every bit as perfectly, far more perfectly than you even love a spouse now or have loved a spouse before. A second purpose for marriage is kind of the idea of a, a generational replacement, right? To, to have offspring, right? You, you have children and, and you die and your children live on and then they die and their children live on. And, and there's this idea that, you know, the, that, that we are fruitful and multiply and go out and spread and subdue the earth. And, and, and we're able to do this by, by being married and having children. Uh, but again, not needed because there is no death in heaven. There's no death in the new earth, right? We'll never pass away, so we never need to be replaced. Third, and perhaps most directly, I see marriage is described in us in Ephesians 5 as being a picture of Christ and the church, right? It is to show us what that looks like, that relationship that Christ has with his bride, the church. It is to, to envision it for us so that we might better understand that, that Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. And so husbands are supposed to love their wives and give themselves up for them in the same way so that we might better understand what it is, the kind of self-sacrificial love that Christ has for his bride. But again, in the new heavens and the new earth, we'll no longer need to have a picture of this, an image of this, because we will experience it fully in all of its reality, in all of its truth, in all of its fullness, as we are with Christ forever as his bride, adorned in all holiness and beauty. 
You see, the Sadducees tried to answer or force Jesus to answer according to their terms, according to their understanding, their thought. But Jesus refuses to jump through their hoops. He refuses to play according to their rules. He is not fooled by the Sadducees. He is not fooled by Satan. He is not fooled by sinners like you and me. Jesus is the one who sets the agenda. He is the one who makes the rules. He is the one who determines what is right and what is wrong. And in verse 24, he tells them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know nothing, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That brings us to our second point. We often fail to experience the joy God has intended for us because we fail to submit to God's word. It's obvious that, that in order to submit to God's word, we have to know God's word, right? But, but far too often, we don't know God's word. I mean, we might have some familiarity with it. We might have some Bible verses that we kind of know. We might even have a handful of Bible verses memorized that we can pull out whenever we want. But far too often, we don't know God's word like we should. We don't know God's word to the point where we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. See what he's saying? He's saying, my very steps are directed by your word, God. My, my very life as I live it is directed by your word. What I am going to do as I go through life, day by day, walking through life, living the life I live, it will be directed by you in your word. That is what he says. God's word is what directs his steps. Some of us don't want to do that because we feel like God's purpose in directing us is to lead us away from anything that is fun, anything that is enjoyable, and to give us the most sour and terrible life ever, right? You know, that, that's how some people think of God's word, right? There's all these rules and it just takes away from all the fun in life and I don't get to do anything I really want to, right? But, but that's not the truth at all. The reality is that God knows best what will ultimately bring us joy. And he has told us we must listen to him. The psalmist knows this. And so, so in that same psalm, Psalm 119, he says things like this. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 127, therefore I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Verse 159, consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. In verse 160, the sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. That is what's most important about God's word. That's what's most important. God's word is true. Let us never forget that. No matter what the world says today, right? The world will tell us that, well, there's nothing wrong with whatever you believe. You just believe whatever you want to. You think whatever you think. You determine your truth. 
the world tells us. God's world says no. God's word says this is truth. Jesus says, I am truth. And so we look to him, we look to God's word, and that is where we find what truly is truth. That's why we look to the scriptures so often on a Sunday morning, right? If our, our, our service, we intentionally saturate with scriptures. Right? From the very beginning, we have a call to worship taken from the scriptures. Right? We have a, an assurance of forgiveness that's taken from the scriptures. We have a, a unison scripture reading that we all read together. We have a sermon text that we stand up as we read it. We have a, a scriptural benediction at the end of the service. We have many other passages of scripture that are in our service. And, and my hope and my prayer is that, that it's not just here on Sunday morning during this one hour each week that you are exposing yourself to the scriptures because God's word is truth. And as we read in 2, Corinthians, or 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That is what we want. It's not enough to simply have the head knowledge. It needs to, it needs to sink deeply into us. It needs to capture our hearts. We need to submit to his word. Jesus continues in verse 20. Six, as for the dead being raised, have you not read? Right? Have you not read? And he goes back to his word again. And he says specifically, have you not read in the book of Moses? Right? This, this is the part of the scriptures that you actually believe, he says to the Sadducees. Or so you say. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He goes to the same passage that we, not coincidentally, just read a little bit ago. It's our unison scripture re reading, right? And he, he says, he points out essentially that God was not saying there, he, he doesn't come out and say, I was the God of Abraham and I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob way back then when they were around. He doesn't say that. He says, I am the God, present, I am. But even more profound and more to the point than, than the tense that's being used there is the fact that the language God uses in that context is covenantal language, right? He, he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. It's a formula that's used over over 20 times in, in those first five books of the Bible alone, right? This formula that, that is, is used by God to show that he is a promise-making God and a promise-keeping God, right? He, he makes promises and he keeps them. And that's why Abraham, we read in Hebrews 11, uh, looked forward to the city that has foundations to des whose designer and builder was God. He was looking forward to the new Jerusalem, right? To the, this heavenly city that was to come. And if it is so that he looked forward to that city, he looked forward to it because he would be resurrected one day. And so even as, as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still alive as God was speaking there, Jesus says in verse 27, he is not the God of the dead, but of 
the living, right? He's not saying he, he was not the God over people who have died. He's saying that God is not the God of men who do not exist, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they didn't just die and you know, decompose and they're gone. They are to be resurrected. I think of when I was a kid, for a while, I don't know if it was the same way here in Michigan, but St. Louis racquetball became a really big, it was, it was the rage, right? And, and my dad bought a, a lifetime membership for our family to a racquetball club that was not too far away from where we lived, which um, about three months later went out of business. Um, yeah, the promise the racquetball club had made to him <laughs> proved not to be worthy <laughs> of belief. But God's promises are not like that. God's promises are believable. God doesn't make eternal covenants with temporal beings, right? We are not just temporal beings. We are eternal beings. God has created us to be such and so, so we indeed believe in his promises of resurrection because his word promises it. The third reason now that we often fail to experience the joy that God intended for us is we think only what we can imagine is possible. Right? Jesus says the other part of the reason there that the, that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection was that they did not know the power of God. They couldn't understand it. They couldn't fathom it. And that's all right. Truth be told, we can't fathom the power of God, right? We can't understand it, right? In our, our very modern uh, desire to systematize and logically understand everything, we try to put it together. We try to do the same thing. We, we want it to be quantifiable. We want it to be measurable, right? We want to be able to put God's power on a scale somehow and say, oh, wow, that, that's really impressive, that much power. But it can't be done. In Ephesians 1, Paul says that, or Paul prays that, that believers might have the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they might be able to comprehend, right? So, so catch this, he's saying that he, he prays that, that this thing that won't naturally happen might happen for them, that the eyes of their heart might be enlightened to understand, to comprehend what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. How great is his might? It's immeasurable, God is omnipotent. His power is unbounded. We cannot even begin to conceive how powerful he actually is. We need to be reminded of what Paul says later in Ephesians. In Ephesians 3, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to his power that is at work in us. How much do you think God can do? How much in your greatest imaginations do you think God can accomplish? How, how great is his power do you think it might possibly be? Think about that. No, it's greater than that. Far more abundant, far more great. No matter how high you ratchet up your thoughts, his power will always be greater. 
That is how great his power is. We need to know what Jeremiah knows in Jeremiah 32. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And that's why he's worthy of our trust, right? That's why he's worthy of our faith. That's why he's worthy of our love and our commitment and, and our giving our whole selves to him, right? Sometimes we 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 condense the gospel down to two statements, and it's a good two-statement condensation of it. One, you are more sinful than you ever feared you were. Statement one, not exactly real good news by itself, but when we bring in statement two, but you are more loved in Christ Jesus than you ever dared to dream. That's good news, right? That's good news because, because I don't have to be good in order to gain the love of Christ Jesus. That's what it says. It says, I'm bad, right? I'm worse than I even think I am, right? And if somebody, somebody comes up to you and insults you, right, the response is you don't know the half of it, right? I'm far worse than that. But in Christ Jesus, I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream. What a wonderful truth it is. But here's the third statement I want to add to that. Here's the third statement that makes it really good news. Jesus has more power than you ever dared to imagine. You see, because because it's bad news that I'm more sinful than I ever feared. It's really good news that Jesus loves me anyway. But if Jesus can't do anything about it, it doesn't matter that he loves me, right? But he can do all things. And so his great love for me takes on great impact and great import, right? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the God we're talking about. And if he can create everything out of nothing, if he can hold all things together by his very word, then there is nothing to it for him to recreate things. Right? If he can create everything out of nothing, and that's what resurrection is. It's the recreation of that which already was. That's what Jesus does. Consider the examples of what he did when he raised the widow of Nain's son, when he raised Jairus' daughter, when he raised Lazarus. Now, sometimes people don't believe in these miracles because they say, well, miracles can't happen. But they think it violates the laws of nature. They think that, well, I just can't get my mind around that. There's no way that that could happen. Because I don't understand it, it can't be so. Well, the prophet Isaiah says, These words from God to us. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
You see, God has power. He has great power, greater power than you could possibly imagine. He has power to create all things out of nothing. He has power to answer your prayers. He has power to convert unbelieving hearts. He has power to save you from your sins. He has power to heal the sick. And yes, he even has power to bring life out of death. That's the very promise, the resurrection, that God's power is greater than death's power. And here's the really good news. The resurrection that Jesus brings is a resurrection that carries with it no more sin and no more death. Every tear will be wiped away. Every sorrow will be gone. And even the worst of pains that you have ever experienced will be redeemed and you will see how they were for your good. Now, frankly, I don't understand that. Frankly, I don't understand how the worst things that have ever happened to me and the worst things that have ever happened to you can actually be for your good. Some of them just seem too terrible. But just because I don't understand it doesn't mean that it's not true. It's not beyond God's power to accomplish it. We often fail to experience God's joy because we try to make God answer on our terms, because we fail to submit to God's word, and because we think only what we can imagine is possible. But with God, all things are possible. As Job said, I know you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In closing, I'd like to say one last thing. I'm forever indebted personally to the legacy of faith that was passed on to me by my mom. And uh, if I've been of any benefit to you, I guess you're indebted to her as well. Yesterday would have been mom's 75th birthday, her first since dying earlier this year, and it was a bittersweet day, of course. Uh, bitter because she's no longer with us, but sweet because of the memories, uh, memories that I have of her, and sweet because I will see her again. There is a resurrection. And when I see her again, she will no longer be as she was earlier this year with her body break, broken down and failing. She'll have a resurrected body, a perfect body. For, for she now rests in glory, but at the resurrection, we will all be made whole. And so it's appropriate on this Sunday where our sermon text talks about the resurrection on this Sunday that is immediately preceding All Saints Day that we would close our service to, together singing of that yet more glorious day when the saints triumphant will rise in bright array. We look forward to that day and we give glory to Christ Jesus even now as we await the King triumphant. Would you pray with me? Lord, bless us this day. Be honored, be glorified, and be magnified. And may we know the joy you have for us. Because you love us and gave your life for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.